0: Welcome to episode 12 of Humanism Now, the podcast from the Central London Humanists for anyone actively involved or just curious about all things humanism. I'm your host, James Hodgson. Now, this week saw the publication of the Freedom of Thought Report by Humanist International. The report assesses every country in the world on the basis of human rights and the legal status with regards to humanists, atheists and non-religious people. Later, we'll have our interview with Emma Wordsworth-Jones, the coordinator of the report, but before that, I'm delighted to be joined by two of our regular co-hosts here at Humanism Now. Nicole from Leicester Humanists, welcome. How are you doing today?
1: Hello, I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for having me as, uh, again.
0: My pleasure. And have you been having any Christmas activities up there with the Leicester Humanists?
1: Uh, we haven't had any uh, official Christmassy ones, uh, although we did have mince pies at our uh, last showing of the uh, uh, Humanist Lecture. Uh, which was very nice, but uh, no, no, no official Christmas, uh, Christmas activities for us this year. Next year, hopefully.
0: And uh, my colleague from the Central London Humanists and the uh, co-leader of the Association of Black Humanists, Lola, good to see you here.
2: Hi, good evening, James. Uh, hi, Nicole.
0: And Lolly, I know you you joined us at our Christmas party last night um, with. Uh, about 50 other members at the Central London Humanists. How how was the
2: event? Oh, that was a blast. It was great from beginning to the end. I laughed. I can't remember the last time I laughed so much. Um, Yes, um, I look forward to next year already. Yeah, definitely. There were
0: lots of requests to run that all, uh, another comedy night all over again. So, yeah, thank you to everybody who came along. Um, I know there are a few <laughs> listeners who, who we met there. Um, it really was a fantastic night. And thank you to everyone who supported it and to all our acts, including Lisa May, who was on the podcast just a few weeks ago. Um, before we start, our icebreaker question this week is topical. I wondered, uh what's your favourite Christmas song? Uh, who wants to have a go first? Nicole, what would you rate as the top Christmas song?
1: I think it's quite a difficult question because there are a lot of good ones. There are a lot of terrible ones out there as well, don't get me wrong. Uh, But I think there was a real uh, uh, peak uh, of really good Christmas songs uh, much earlier, about 50 years ago. My favourite, I think, would have to be uh, Christmas Baby Please Come Home, uh, originally by Darlene Love. I think that is still the best version. It's been covered a lot, um, but it's absolutely gorgeous and it's... um, tinged with a lot of sadness you know Christmas while it's you know a time for warmth and happiness and family it's also it can bring up a lot of uh, complicated feelings I think in many people even people who really like Christmas there's a lot of sadness associated with this time of year so I think having such a gorgeous Christmas song that is you know bittersweet and melancholy I think that's really important and it just just sounds great. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's the appeal of Fairy Tale of New York as well. Um, which is which has always been a standout. Lola, how about for you? What's your favorite Christmas song?
2: I think it would it will have to be I don't know if if I am um, guessing correctly, it's I think it's called Drama Boy or something along that, that line. Little drummer boy. Yeah, yeah, and it's because of my dad. Um <laughs> even though it was in Nigeria, my dad was big on Christmas and you know, from the 1st of December, you know, his number one Christmas song will be Drummer Boy. And <laughs> he, and we will, we will have to endure it throughout December several times a day. So because of my dad, <laughs> this is my favorite. Oh, that's such a lovely
0: story. Thanks for sharing. And, um, yeah, it was quite a challenge putting together the playlist for the party last night to try and find some modern Christmas songs. You're right, Nicole, there aren't too many, but I can make a recommendation. Uh, I, fu- I found that CeeLo Green of Niles Barkley has produced a Christmas album. And I have to say, it's actually fantastic. Um, and if you're going to pick one track, his, his cover of Run Run Rudolph might be my new favourite Christmas song.
1: I'm definitely looking forward to hearing that because uh, I hadn't even heard of that at all. I hadn't heard he'd done a Christmas album.
0: But you're, but you're right. Uh, it was hard to find anything from the last 30 years. Now, um, before we move on to our interview, Lola, I know you've been um, very busy looking into some of the government's new proposals. Uh, we've covered immigration policy or uh, immigration uh, responses from the government here on the podcast previously. But I think with some new developments... I, I, I understand you've got some thoughts you'd like to share.
2: Yeah, I think there are a few things, and it's about the financial threshold, but I'm not going to go into it for workers, so I want to focus on um, families. So for people who are settled in the UK and British citizens that are married to non-British or have non-British uh, partners, and they want them to either stay in the UK, maybe uh, their partners are already in the UK as workers or as students or on or, or any other uh, lawful basis, and they want them to stay with them in the UK, or their you know, partners or spouses are overseas and they want them to join them in the UK. So the financial threshold right now is 18600 and um, the government has announced that they are going to double that and it's going to be thirty eight thousand seven hundred pounds. Um, so the sponsor has to be earning that amount per annum to be able to bring over their their partners or their spouses. So that is um, that is at the moment shaking um people. People who have families, um, overseas and, you know, want, you know, wanting to bring their, their loved ones. And usually it's sometimes you are just bringing your partner or your, or your spouse. But then you may have children and the children may not be British and you may need to, um, bring them over as well. So that is the concern now.
0: And mm. um, what are the reasons the government has give, given for this increase in the threshold or such a dramatic increase?
2: Yeah, this particular announcement is because of the concerns around net migration. They feel that more people are coming into the UK than people living in the UK. And I think they will have it, they would prefer to have it the other way round. So I think, you know, they, they said they are in, increasing the, the threshold of what workers can earn so that they can bring down the number of people um, coming into the UK. Um, my concern right now is that in order to bring the numbers down, um, I'm, I'm just thinking, are they thinking about families Are they thinking about actual British citizens?
0: Yes, and which family members will be directly affected, um, or the family members of British citizens, by this increase?
2: Um, As I said earlier on, will be partners. When I say partners, not just casual partners, people that you are um, in a relationship with, in a relationship akin to marriage, or people that you are married to, or people, or if you if you want to apply as a fiancé so that you marry within the UK, and if your spouse or partner um, has children, they may even be your children because I, I have some clients, for example, they are dual nationals, maybe they are uh, like Australians, and then they have. British citizenship as well. And they've been living in Australia for a long time and for whatever reason they want to move to the UK. So they have children who are not British and they have partners or spouses who are not British. So this is going to be affecting immediate family members in terms of children and uh, partners or spouses.
0: And do you think in terms of managing immigration, this this uh, new threshold will actually assist the government with their, their aims of uh, lowering the overall numbers.
2: And that's my worry. That's my worry that, okay, this is what they want to achieve. But, you know, are they going to be able to achieve this in this particular way? Because um, this is, Almost double is near double of um, minimum wage. How many people are earning that um, figure? And, um, like I said, some partners are already in the UK on some of these are, some of them they are students, Um, some of them they have work visa. So, what this may do is, I hope not, but, you know, when people are pushed, this is what can happen. So we we may have British citizens that are now worried and thinking, I don't want my spouse to leave me. I don't want my partner to leave me. I don't want my children to leave me. So maybe in the meantime, if we can't afford this, maybe they just stay in the UK. And then that will be pushing up the figures of people who are now forced, who are lawfully in the UK, who are afraid that if they leave the UK, you know, they will not be able to come back because their, 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 their British partner, their British spouses are not earning that figure. So if they leave, they will not be able to come back. So they would rather stay in the UK. Illegally, and that is the that is the last thing people want, you know, regardless of what is being reported in the media, because life as an illegal um, immigrant is very very difficult. You may not be able to get treatment. Um, you you may not be able to. It's not even may, you know, landlord they don't want to to to, to let to illegal immigrants. So and you will not be able to work. And, you know, it will affect, you know, every area of of life. So people will be forced to to, to do that and just stay at home, you know, and um, hoping for the best. So it will achieve the very opposite the government is trying to avoid.
0: Yeah, and I'm wondering, will there be an additional negative impact on the job market if uh, people feel they can only move to the UK if they're going for, as you say, more of the higher paid jobs um, and not filling potential gaps in the labour market? As you say, most jobs probably fall into this bracket between the current threshold and what they're looking to increase it to. Is there likely to be then um, issues in filling those those yeah. types of professions? I'm thinking particularly across the NHS.
2: Yeah, the NHS, this, um, in terms of maybe the carers, this threshold is not affecting them, but other areas, you know, other um, there are many many businesses for whatever reason, you know they are under pressure, they are not able to fill in to fill these uh, vacancies, and they are you know wanting to bring in workers and the impact of this on the on the economy on on businesses, I just hope that the government will really look into this uh, like I said earlier at the beginning of this, I want to focus on families um you know for today to just think about families because okay yes I'm worried for companies that need workers from overseas. it's a need if 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 businesses don't need it they would not be doing it. it it costs them a lot of money as well so there is a need for it that's why you know businesses are engaging in bringing workers from overseas but let's leave businesses aside for now and concentrate on on families. As we all know, families are the heart of a nation. You know, we have uh, many British citizens who have worked overseas. Some of them, they are working for British companies overseas. And, you know, they've made the love of their life, they've established families overseas. And then when their work, you know, ends overseas and they want to come back home, how can they not come back with the family that they've established? How can how can we make that difficult for them? Some of them, are, I have many clients that are coming back, not even because they want to come back, not because they, their work has finished or anything, but because they have elderly parents and they want to come back to the UK to look after their um, elderly parents. That, that's all. And they're having to uproot their life, the lives of their partners. But they can't, you know... I'm just worried. I'm worried that this is not just affecting immediate um families, immediate lovers. I'm worried about the effect of, of this on the extended families, on many grandparents in the in the in, in the UK. Yeah,
0: I wonder Lola, with your um both your role as now being you know actively involved in in, in humanist causes um and obviously your uh, incredible uh, professional experience and um, do if if you anyone is listening and these types of issues are affecting them please do check out um Lola's professional profile um ba- based on your experience what recommendations w- would you make to any government in taking a humane and practical, reasonable approach to these types of issues around immigration.
2: I think for for everything that I've explained, one, this is nearly double minimum wage. It's not reasonable to say only those who are earning certain amount. I understand what the government wants to achieve. The government doesn't want people to come into the UK and be a burden on the um, benefit system, for years now, you cannot claim benefit anyway if you are coming in as a partner or as a spouse. You are barred from claiming benefit. Um, also, um, people who are coming in, you know, migrants, they pay immigration health surcharge so that they are not a burden on the NHS. So they are already, and actually, they are paying double tax because. Um, most of them, when they when they are you know when they come to the UK, they are working and they will be paying you know um, their national insurance, paying in, you know their tax, paying to the health system, and then they pay immigration health surcharge on top of it. So, for you know, right to family life, it's one of the fundamental human rights. And as humanists, we believe so much. We are passionate about human rights. So, I'm, um, you know, begging the government to review this so that the threshold is not so high so as to stop, um, families, so as to stop, um, you know, breaking up families, um, the effect on, um, you know, we may have some family that will say, okay, maybe I can, bring my wife and leave the children behind for now maybe when my wife comes and then she's able to get you know the job and then maybe we'll bring our children i we'll bring one child at a the time there'll be all sorts of arrangements and some people may not may not even i don't know what you know what individual families will think maybe they are able to achieve but we still We don't want a situation whereby we are having family members of British citizens, family members of people in their own country not being able to make applications to the Home Office and then becoming illegal when, you know, we don't need to have, we don't need to have that situation at all. At the moment, it is 18,600, you know, So why can't we even have minimum wage people, many people on minimum wage, being able to have their families with them?
0: Yeah, it it is very strange, this idea that they're trying to enforce a situation, um, or create a situation where people will be forced to play into that stereotype that they're trying to avoid of coming to the country and not contributing (laughs) <laughs> to to the workforce um it is odd that that you know that that stereotype persists when um you, you only have to you know talk to most people who who move to the country they want to work or they want to um contribute and yet it sounds like the policy is in, uh, for what you're saying a a intended or unintended consequence of the policy is that it will put people in a position where it's better for them to remain as you say um uh, an illegal and and not and not uh, and not go out and work so, yeah, it does. It does sound like a bit of a backwards uh, step.
2: Let's let's um, fingers crossed that they rethink on this one. And in a way, I don't know why I feel so strongly that they are going to rethink. Uh, you know, I just feel so strongly that for families, you know, they will rethink that one and um, come up with a different figure. You know, something that is reasonable. It has to be in line with, you know, a lot of nurses, a lot of teacher, teachers, police officers would not be able to, I don't, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult one to process. And I don't know where that figure has come from. I don't, I don't, I'm trying to rationalize, you know, I'm trying to figure out how did they come up with that figure? Because I can understand 18,600. Even though, you know, for me, I would have thought if you are earning above at least income support rate, because before they introduced any financial threshold, it used to be adequate maintenance. And to measure that, you know, to determine whether you can adequately support somebody, you know, you must be earning income support rate. You know, and then they changed it from that to 18,000. Six hundred. And then we've we've lived with that since twenty twelve. It has worked for um vast majority. But now to to double it, it's not even double, it's more than double.
1: This is all really interesting, Lola. I was wondering, um, in one of the ways of you mentioned a bit about how they came up with the figures um and about minimum wage. Um so I've just had a look and it looks like the full-time minimum wage is about just over, it's uh, 18900 or so. Um, do you think that's uh, related to how they came up with the figures and um, also some of the other issues about uh, where people's money might come from? Uh, because obviously wages aren't the one and only thing.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I don't think I'm absolutely sure, but I believe that they came up with that 18600 from minimum um, wage. Full time in a year. Uh, But that was 12 years ago. I I can't, I don't know what the figure was um, 12 years ago. So we've had that 18,600 since um, 2012. So for 11 years now. So the new figure is very difficult to establish, you know, how did they come up with it? Um, The alternative to Income, you know, um, of 18600 is savings of 62500 over six months. So if you don't have a job, for example, but you have savings, you can use that. So I'm now concerned to work out, we've been trying to work out the equivalent because how they came up with the um, $62,500 is... Um, the first 16,000 is, you know, if you want to claim benefit, that is the threshold of the savings that um, if, if you you can have up to 16,000, but you can't have more than that. So that is the, the first 16,000 of the um, 62,500. And, and the rest is from 18,000 because if you are granted, um, if your spouse application is granted, You'll be granted two and a half years. So it's 18,600 multiplied by two and a half plus the 16,000. So that's how they came about it. So if it is, if it is going to be 38,700, that will be 38,700 multiplied by two and a half plus 16,000. My mathematics is not the best, but we are looking at over a hundred thousand savings. How many people are going to have that? Um, A lot of my clients, some of them will get um, help from their, you know, a gift, cash gift, sometimes from, you know, uh, parents, uh, grandparents, extended relatives, good friends. Um, How many people will now have, you know, sometimes some parents are selling property to raise this money because they want um, uh, their children to be happy. They want to, to see their grandchildren in the UK. So some parents are selling property to raise this money, you know, to, to give, to, to give their children. Now, when it's now over 100,000, how many, how many, how many people can raise that? So it's becoming, then marriage, love is now becoming, um, it's no longer a fundamental right but right of the privileged and the, and the rich i think as humanists we we should be concerned you know we, we really should be concerned
0: absolutely and thank you very much for bringing all of this to our attention lola and certainly we'll be coming back to you for updates um over the coming months and hopefully as you mentioned we can make some progress on this matter Um, Thanks for all your hard work as well. So Lola, Nicole, thanks for your input and we will be back after our interview with Emma Wadsworth-Jones. Hi, my name is Lucy Potter and I'm a researcher based at the University of Sheffield. I am currently conducting research on how asylum claims on the grounds of non-religiosity, which can include apostasy and blasphemy, are handled by the UK government. I am looking for refugees or people who are still seeking asylum on these grounds to take part in an interview with me on their experiences of the asylum system. This research is really important because there is no research on how non-religious asylum claims are dealt with currently and not much is known about non-religious persecution more widely. If you take part in this research you will remain anonymous and unidentifiable and I hope this research will make the asylum system inclusive of all belief systems. And I encourage anyone with experience to please contact me. My email is lpotter2 at sheffield.ac.uk. Thank you. Emma Wadsworth-Jones is responsible for managing and coordinating Humanist International's activities on behalf of Humanists at Risk and the principal editor of the Freedom of Thought report. Emma has a distinguished career in casework and campaigning for freedom of expression and devised strategies to support writers at risk across Africa, the Americas, Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, and we're here today to discuss the latest edition of the Freedom of Thought Report. Emma Woodsworth jones thank you very much for joining us on Humanism Now. Thank you very much for having me. Before we talk about the report, could you share a little bit about your personal background and how you came to your current role and decision to specialise in free thought matters?
3: Yeah, of course. Um, So I joined Humanist International about three and a half years ago, I I think, at this point. Um, The role was entirely new um, and was created out of a reflection that we had increased numbers of requests from individuals at risk who needed support and we needed a more systematic approach to, to helping them. Um, so the role was created and I appeared, um, as you said, in my introduction, I worked for Penn International for several years, for about eight years actually, um, before this. So I have a long experience of devising strategies to support individuals at risk and also human rights research um, and documentation of violations. Um, so I've kind of, when I was working at Penn, uh, there was a lot of actual crossover and work with. Humanist International, because so many of the cases were the same. Um, Especially when I was working on Asia, we had the the Bangladeshi bloggers who were being attacked from sort of 2012-2015 onwards. And so there was a lot of overlap as I was working to support a lot of those secular bloggers. And so I knew about the work. I'm an atheist. I've been brought up an atheist um, and I have discovered since that I am a humanist. So that's nice to know. And that's, yeah, where I come from.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I think that link between, um, I guess, well, I guess it's free speech, isn't it, when we talk about um, uh, writers in particular, um, and free thought. Um, and, and I guess the, the free thinker movement is, is uh, long standing. So yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. So could you give an overview of the Freedom of Thought report's main objectives? And what are this year's key findings and trends that you're seeing globally?
3: Of course. So the Freedom of Thought report documents each state's record of upholding the rights of the non-religious globally. So we have an entry for every country in the world. It's an online first report. So every country has an entry online uh, uh, on our website. And then each year we publish a key countries edition, which is what we're talking about today, which is um, probably between 10 to 15 entries that have been updated in the course of the year. Uh, that we publish in print and then share with the world. Um, We don't update every country every year, which is why it's difficult to make really broad, sweeping generalisations. But I can definitely give you a few insights. Um, The report itself... There are lots of reports out there that look at the persecution of other religious or belief minorities across the globe. And this is, to our knowledge, the only one that focuses specifically on the non-religious. And so our aim is to be an authoritative, objective and accurate source of information that our stakeholders can go to, whether that's international institutions like the United Nations or state governments, NGOs, um, so that there is something that's reputable and reliable that people can go to. And in terms of the sort of the patterns that we see, um, one thing that we definitely do know from from our our data is that approximately 70 percent of the world's population live in countries where the repression of humanist values is severely repressed. Um, So that means that, you know, The full realisation of one's rights to freedom of religion or belief is impossible. You're likely to see um, apostasy laws, blasphemy laws, uh, a greater preponderance of harmful traditional practices um, and it's likely to be people living in countries where religious nationalism is entrenching conservative values within society.
0: And in what way does this more systematic systematic legal discrimination manifest against non-religious people and, and how does it impact their day-to-day lives?
3: Well, so when it comes to sort of the systematic, what you're likely to see is um, that non-religious worldviews aren't actually included within the state's understanding of what freedom of a religion or belief is. So you're likely to see a level of discrimination there and disparity where religious groups are afforded privileges that the non-religious don't have. So it might be tax exemptions, for example, or um, funding for for their buildings, for their activities, perhaps. It's likely in those circumstances that there's a state religion um, and that there might be some form of religious education, which is mandatory. Um, And there isn't a secular or or sort of humanist alternative to that, that someone could choose to opt into instead of a religious education. And what that means is you tend to see marginalisation and stigma. Um, The non-religious struggle to express their their non-religious views um, or they might face stigma for calling for state secularism, for example, and that has knock-on effects in terms of someone's ability, for example, to secure employment, for example, um, or retain it, even. They might find that they, they get a job and then because of their beliefs, there's a, they find a way to dismiss them relatively quickly. Um, and of course, blasphemy laws are a really, a really big issue for the non-religious. So... We find that where blasphemy laws, the penalties are highest and the most severe. So the death penalty or perhaps prison, but particularly the death penalty. What you'll see is um, a greater likelihood that there'll be vigilante justice. So um, that's a, a very threatening circumstance for, for people to live in. Um, and... It can mean actual attacks, like the Bangladeshi bloggers, for example, that we've already discussed, um, similar in Pakistan. It can also mean social isolation, familial abuse. um, And it can lead to all of this can lead to a a really stifling environment, which is really damaging to someone's mental health when they're not able or they don't feel safe to express their, their personal views and live true to their own values.
0: Mm, and yeah, it certainly sounds like it's that there's a whole range of threats and, and challenges that are faced. How does the type of discrimination which you document not only um, impact non-religious people, but also religious minorities or non-conformists in the countries that are highlighted?
3: It absolutely does. Um, I think that that's especially the case where there is a state religion from which legislation is is at least partly derived. Where where that's the case, you'll find that any religion or belief minority will face persecution. Um, our report obviously focuses on the persecution that the non religious might face. But in many circumstances it's actually very difficult to get data on the non religious. Not because they don't exist, but because of the, the the circumstances in which they live, they're probably living underground and the state probably doesn't even recognise that they don't exist. So there's not the sort of the attention paid to them. So in those circumstances, we try to look at wider patterns of persecution and look at where there are patterns that are more generalizable to, 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 to our population by looking at religion or belief minorities within a given country. Um, and what happens when you have a, a state religion is that you tend to find that there's a very prescriptive view of that religion and the interpretation of that religion and so even um what's the term we would use sort of sects or the Ahmadi muslims for example in pakistan um are not deemed to be muslims in 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 pakistan they're not allowed to identify as such Um, and that's because there is a really strict interpretation of that and we see this across the globe in in any country where there is a, a strong religious group that has has an influence over state policy um, it's not specifically limited to one religion or belief group we see discrimination across the globe from whichever religion or belief group and it's also important I think to say that we see discrimination perpetrated by non religious majority groups too so for example if you look at france you see that sort of it's a so-called secular state it's not a state that we would deem to be secular because they weaponize laicite against religious minorities particularly um the muslim population
0: yeah no it's a it's a very important point um to highlight as well so this really is a um As much as it's a humanistic report, it really has secularism at its core. Yes. And about that freedom to practice one's religion. So do do you offer um, advice to states or or, or what role do you believe that uh, authorities or governments should play in protecting and promoting freedom of thought and belief in their society?
3: Well, I think fundamentally it is is the state's role to uphold the rights of, of all. Um, and as humanists, we believe in freedom of religion or belief for all. Um, we don't believe that in that we are superior. We don't advocate solely for us versus anyone else. It's very much everyone should have the right to believe whatever they choose. And for that reason, I think it's imperative for, for states to uphold secularism, which by which we mean a separation between religious and political authorities and where no one is persecuted against for their religion or belief. Um, and I think that that's the key priority for, for states, or it should be, because only by upholding secularism will you see the full realisation of human rights and democracy. Um, because the national framework, legal framework, influences social behaviour. So where you see the privilege of one or more religion or belief groups within a country, that will often be reflected back in social dynamics and in, in other areas. Of society, Uh, so it's really important that the government and the authorities do
0: actually pay attention to the issue. On that point, you mentioned France as an example of a state which is um, would describe itself as secular, um, but you know potentially has a slightly different interpretation of what that means to Mm. what we'd like to see. Are are there any countries which you would say are doing secularism? right you know who who probably have a a, a good a good approach to model or is there is there work to be done everywhere
3: um i think according to our report there are perhaps i think it's i i don't know off the top of my head for certain but it's around 20 countries that we would deem to be truly secular um Uh, So if I have a think, in fact, let me have a look at what they are. One of them would be Belgium. Um, We have Chile, we have uh, Ukraine, uh, South Africa, Slovenia. Um, There's a whole range of countries that do it and do it slightly differently. I think that the key for us is to make sure that when, when we're upholding secularism, we're making sure that that is freedom of religion or belief for all and not just for the non-religious to, to, to be safe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And not, not just for the, for the majority or yeah, for any one group. No, that, that makes sense. Um, so how is the Freedom of Thought report being used to influence policy and aid individuals in facing persecution for their beliefs? It's been used in a lot of ways, actually. That's one of the
3: most exciting things about the report, I find, is the ways that particularly Humanist International's members and associates use the report, um, often within their own domestic advocacy efforts. And that might be around issues that they are facing within their own country um, and Using the report to really lend legitimacy to, to the fact that the non-religious exist and are a distinct minority within freedom of religion or belief. Lots of states fail to understand that nuance and fail to fully understand the right to freedom of religion or belief does include the non-religious. So, um, having a report like this really helps to, to lend legitimacy to that, which we know to be a fact, but they might not have a full understanding of. Um, So lots of our members use it for those purposes. They also use it to support individuals at risk or to advocate on change in countries where there might be, for example, the UK might have a a trade agreement with another state and being able to say, okay, but if you're going to make a new trade agreement, then please make it contingent on these things. Look at the circumstances that people are facing and leveraging the report to to bring about that change. Um, In in really specific terms, we've seen it used to help influence asylum policy. So one of the things that I come up against quite a lot in my work is um, faulty asylum determinations where a non-religious person's asylum claim will be rejected on the basis that They don't have to manifest their belief in the way that uh, a Christian or a, a Muslim might you know we don't have to go to a church or a mosque or wherever it might be so we can just conceal our identity and that's fine so we can go home we're safe if we just pretend but that's not actually how the right works general comment 22 has made it very clear that that is not acceptable it's not acceptable for anyone Um, That was a a thing that was used with the LGBT community for a long time to deny them their rights and say, oh, well, just go home and pretend to be straight. You'll be fine. No, it's not acceptable. Um, And so what we've been doing and what several of our members have been doing is using the report to to make it clear to states that the non-religious face persecution because of their beliefs and that they should be treated equally with their religious counterparts. So we've seen change in Norway, for example. The Ministry of Justice have released guidance that the non-religious and their persecution on the basis of their beliefs should be treated equally. Um, In the UK, I know that Humanist UK has done a lot of work with the Home Office in training Home Office staff in assessing the cases of the non-religious and have used the report too. Um, I use the report every day uh, in my work, particularly working with individuals at risk um either to help me assess their cases and 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 judge their level of risk but also to advocate for them so where they are claiming asylum or where they are seeking relocation I can use the, the evidence in the report to say look this is this is backed up by actual evidence here it is take it seriously and I know that there are lots of other NGOs that use it too for that reason
0: that's fantastic yeah and 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 uh, thank you for leading us on to some of the wider work that humanist international does and um for anyone who uh, is not aware do check out the website and just the, the sheer scope that, of work and coverage that humanist international do it, it's it's really amazing um how else do do you and and the wider team at humanist international work to support individuals and communities who who are at risk
3: well, I think it's it's a common thread throughout everything that we do. So core to our strategy is ensuring that everyone can lead a dignified and fulfilling life. Um, so, for example, we have an advocacy team that uh, lobby international institutions at the sort of EU level, at the United Nations level to ensure that human rights priorities that are informed by humanist values are on the agenda. Um, and to raise cases of concern with relevant authorities and make sure that they are being protected and supported. We also support our member and associate organisations on the ground, both through providing grants so that they can run their own projects, but also through capacity building, training and initiatives, for example. I think one of the things to remember with, with our members and associates is that uh, many of them are operating in, in in climates that are really hostile to their existence. So we have we have a duty to support them. They are trailblazing. They are being the public face that shows that humanism is is a friendly thing, not not something to be afraid of. Um, and uh, so we support them in order to to be able to to run and operate their their work. And then in addition to that. We also provide direct support to individuals at risk, um, which varies depending on the individual and what what their needs are. But it might be public campaigning, such as in the case of Mubarak Bala, who is the president of the Humanist Association of Nigeria, who is currently serving a 24-year prison sentence for um, causing a public disturbance due to Facebook posts that some people deem to be blasphemous. Um, It could be also through advocacy. So, for example, Uh, liaising with a special rapporteur on freedom of religion or belief, for example. Um, It could also be through private diplomacy. So reaching out to local governments and and making them aware of situations, helping getting them to help facilitate um, protective measures. It might be through emergency grants, too, um, which we provide to individuals to help cover legal fees, to help cover daily expenses. Many people who are living in hiding can't go out to work. So being able to provide them with uh, a small, a a modest, genuinely modest financial grant um, can help them to to have the headspace to work out what they do next. Um, And then also providing the asylum support that I've discussed, challenging those those dodgy um, decisions and looping people into a wider network of, of non-religious people, of humanists. O- often people feel very isolated where they are and being able to connect them with a wider network can be so nourishing um, and supportive and help them to, to feel safe.
0: Thank you. Yeah, no, it's not just such a, a wide range of activities that you have, but I love that the core of running through it is is that allowing people to be publicly who they are and also to feel feel safe. And, and certainly I can attest to the community that's provided through the global network. We, we, we ran an event um, on World Humanist Day last year and tried to get as many uh, local representatives of local groups. Um, and it was wonderful to see, you know, we have a pretty thriving group here in London, but, um, for a lot of people who joined, it was very much heartwarming to connect with people who understood and were going through similar issues and the issues Absolutely. that were faced in each of those countries were so sometimes so different. And I think we forget, um, as you say, there's still plenty of issues to work on here in the UK, but you forget that sometimes the, the, the daily, uh, Persecution and, and oppression um, in, in other countries is is still very severe so so thank you for all the fantastic work that, that you t- continue to do. If anyone is listening and, and interested to support you know, how, how can individuals or, or organizations um, contribute to the cause and, and and help you with these campaigns
3: Oh, there are so many ways um obviously there, there there's the donation um, of course, you can, you can become an individual supporter of, of the cause to Humanist International. You can sign up to our newsletter. And I think that doing that in itself is actually really useful because there you find information on what's going on elsewhere in the world. And it means that when there is a case that we need people globally to take up and to stand for, you've got access to that information and when we put a call out you can you can take action on that case you can you can do what we, we i always send out suggestions of what you should do who you write to etc cetera, etc cetera. um and having people to actually take up the cause and to to advocate for for our friends and colleagues is is really important um i think that another really key way that we can we can influence changes is, is actually by by raising awareness about what's going on. So like I said before, this is one report in a myriad of reports that are out there that look at lots of different people and lots of different groups. And I think that the non-religious are often overlooked. And so being able to spread the word, sharing information, publicising the fact that the non-religious do face persecution really sensitises states to the fact that it should also be a priority and they should pay attention to it and it shouldn't be overlooked. So that when people do reach out for help, it's taken seriously. Um, I think that as humanists, we also, we are able to show that that non-religious beliefs aren't threatening. Uh, you know, we, we believe in for, for all. And if we can demonstrate that we aren't threatening, we help to create a safer environment for, for everyone. Um, and I think that that's really important. And then if you want to do something really active, you can obviously volunteer time, volunteer to help research for the Freedom of Thought report, for example, or if you've got linguistic expertise, I'm always looking for people with linguistic expertise, please come my way. You know, there are lots of different ways to get involved, depending on how much energy you have.
0: <laughs> um, well, we can definitely include your contact details or how to get involved Thanks. and uh, to, if any any listeners uh, would like to contribute with with reporting or translating um, to get in touch. Um And before we go, um, are you optimistic about the future uh, when it comes to to matters of freedom of thought and belief?
3: Yes, I am. Um, I'm optimistic because there are organisations like yours and like so many others that are members of, of Humanist International that are doing the work and that are doing amazing things all over the globe that will bring about change over time. I think it's it's very easy to become sort of apathetic and feel like nothing's, nothing's changing. Um, I sometimes succumb to that feeling too, but I think that actually change takes time and persistence, but I do think we will get there. I think that we will see positive developments. We just have to be patient and persistent.
0: Fantastic, and, and thank you for your positive attitude as well in in, in approaching these matters. I imagine it can be um, not only a very stressful undertaking putting together such a huge report, but it, as you mentioned, sometimes um, it, it it must feel like a, a struggle, um, and and that that uh, there's there's still a lot to 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 fight for. Uh, but you seem to be t- approaching it with a um, with a a warm and and um, positive attitude. So um, thank you again for your hard work. Just to wrap up, um, we like to ask our guests what something they've changed their mind on recently. Um, This could be related to the report or just something more general in your life.
3: You know, I was trying to think about this for ages. I don't know whether it's just that I'm incredibly stubborn. Um, I think it's not that. I think I, you know, my views tend to be informed by human rights and uh, by facts and information so apart from the very small day-to-day things like how i want to approach a sewing project i haven't really changed my mind on anything in a while um not that i'm not open to it i would love to be have someone change my mind um but at the moment
0: i haven't got anything for you i'm afraid (laughs) no problem Well, well what's the next sewing project
3: Uh, I'm finishing um, various Christmas presents uh, at the moment so um, I'm trying to work out how to finish sewing a a, a wash bag and tying myself in knots.
0: (laughs) Well it is the season so Emma thank you so much uh, not only for all your fantastic work Um, if anybody would like to read this year's Freedom of Thought report it will be out at the time of publication Um, And we'll share all the relevant links. And of course, if you would like to contribute, um, please do contact Emma or you can contact us uh, and we will put you in touch. Um, But Emma Wadsworth-Jones, thank you so much for joining us on Humanism Now. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Humanism Now. And thank you to Emma Wadsworth-Jones for that fantastic interview and, and all of the amazing work. That her and her team do on the Freedom of Thought report. It will be published by the time this podcast goes live. So if you're interested to see how your country performs, do go and check that out. Nicole, um, I know you had a chance to uh, hear what Emma had to say there. What was your main takeaways from not only Emma's comments on comments, but also the report in general?
1: Yeah, it's always really interesting, and it's always really interesting to listen to Emma talk about her work. It's very important and very highly specialised, so it was great to listen to. Um, the thing that struck me the most, and it's something I've always been very aware of with um, the work of Humanist International and the Freedom of Thought Report, and, but it's something that people who are a bit more new to it or outside of it might not realise, is that it's not just for us as uh, atheists and humanists and uh, people with no faith. It's for anyone who is a, a religious minority. Um, and it's something that Emma was talking about and it's, uh, it's really important because if we believe in true, uh, freedom of religion and belief, it's freedom for other people to have their own religion and express their own religion. And I think that, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a humanist who would disagree with that because one of the reasons that we're free to be humanists and talk about our ideas is because us here in the UK have the freedom to say, you know, I'm a humanist, don't believe in God, but this is what I do believe in. And because of that, uh, we should also defend the rights of others to be able to believe what they believe and um, be and support in other countries how we can the, that freedom of religion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that really stood out to me was um, her comments on France, which is a country that many of us would think of as being secular. Um, however, and it, their, their low score is not due to uh, people not... Not being allowed to be openly atheist or humanist, but because of their restrictions on um, uh, those who want to uh, demonstrate uh, their religion through their, their wear or, or, or symbolism. So I think it, th- that side of it of supporting everyone to express their religion in, you know, provided they're not it's, it's uh, within reason, uh, express their religion freely is hugely important. And I know it's also well-respected amongst religious groups as well. So um, it's, it's incredibly important work, and I hope they keep it up.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's it. You know, we're, as humanists pushing for a secular society, some people might misinterpret that as, oh, we want all religion gone. Of course we don't. But we want everyone to be able to pick their own religion and be free to believe that and not believe it or believe in something else rather than it being dictated from any bigger body.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, and Lola, I think from your experience uh, with the humanist groups and also your professional experience, um, do you think it is important that we try to make the UK more of a accepting society uh, for people who are coming to the UK, uh, perhaps for uh, dealing with difficulties of uh, freedom of belief in their own countries and do you think we need to increase the level of understanding that people people have of the potential challenges that um, those who are in a minority or perhaps leaving faith face when they are uh, coming out in, in certain countries?
2: Absolutely, I think what we are proud of about the UK is our um, tolerance and our um, acceptance of people. You know. Um, Regardless of your religion, your orientation, um, a lot of people that have fled to the UK, they have fled to the UK because of what we are, what we stand against. Um, some people have fled to the UK because they are of different sects of the same religion. They they are facing persecution and um, that uh, risk to their life. Because they, you know, they are a minority sect in their own country or because they change their, their thought. Um, you know, in some countries, if you uh, leave Islam to even become a Christian, we are not talking about atheism now. <laughs> like you, 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 leave Islam, you become a Christian and that right. beca- puts you at risk, you know, put your life at risk. Um, therefore, you know, we we have that moral responsibility. And as we said uh, uh, earlier on, we are signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights. We are signatory to uh, the United Nations Refugee Convention and United Refugee Convention, one of the things um, recognized is respect um, for freedom of expression, freedom of thought, you know, and freedom of um, religion. Um, as as humanists, um we are hoping for um a day, you know, what what we are against really, or what I am against as you know, um as a humanist or what I will want is a rational world. But rationality is a journey. I'm grateful for the journey for my journey to humanism. I was religious, but I enjoyed, you know, practicing my religion. It was on my own, you know, in, 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 it was at home that I became an atheist. Nobody, nobody, nobody told me anything. I figured it out myself. Uh, if people ever figure it out, fine. If they never figure it out, as long as what they believe does not put anybody else at risk, as long as you are not targeting anyone because of their gender, because of their sexuality, because of anything, whatever you want to believe, please. Free, feel free. Um, so I hope that we continue to be, um, tolerant in the UK. Um, we are tolerant and I hope that we continue to be and any voice that is coming against that. I hope, I hope that we resist, we, we resist voice, uh, intolerant voices.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think tolerance is, is fundamental. Um, and, uh, uh, the key, one of the key things about tolerance is it doesn't come easy. I think lots of people like to consider themselves tolerant. Uh, but it, 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 in order for, you have, in order to be tolerating something, it must be something that potentially you're not too comfortable with. So it's, it's something that, that requires that constant work. And thank you as well for flagging some positives. I know we can be a little bit down here on some of the things in the UK, uh, a lot of the time, but thank you for your right to flag some positives, um, that we are able to offer, uh, humanists at risk around the world. Um, but whilst we may be uh, a reasonably tolerant society, Nicole, do you think the UK is a secular society?
1: Interesting. Well, it's officially not, isn't it? Partly there's things like the the bishops in the House of Lords is the big, the big issue. Um, and then the fact that um, a lot of politicians, they want to bring back, you know, they, they keep saying we're a Christian country or wanting to bring back more Christian flavour into uh, the government. Uh, which I think lots of people, even lots of Christians also disagree with because, again, they're like, well, I want to do it, but not because the government's telling me or because this is some mandated thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that, even though we're officially not, I think that um, in kind of day-to-day life, um, I don't know, it's kind of de facto secularism in a way. You know, unlike France, anyone can display their... Religious clothes or signs of um, religious affiliation publicly, um, and again, and express themselves, express their different opinion as long as it's not, you know, uh, anything hateful or harmful to others. Um, and I feel like day to day that's very good in the UK in general. Um, I live in Leicester, uh, which I uh, mentioned before, you know, very multicultural, very multi faith. And you see people everywhere with all these different, you know, religious clothes and religious things. And um, the city ce- does really good in celebrating basically every single religious holiday, even the really small ones. Um, And it's really lovely. You know, it's really nice to see that the council isn't being like, oh, no, we have to make the Christian one the big one. It's like, oh, it's all great. And obviously some will naturally be smaller. But, um, yeah, I think that on the ground we're quite good. Obviously, we, you know, I think we can improve. There's always room for improvement. But uh, in general, I think it's quite good in the UK.
2: Lola, would you concur? Yeah, absolutely. And I think... um... I I think that neutrality is what we need to, to seek, you know, in terms of how we conduct, especially, you know, um policies and so that it gives equal opportunity to everyone. Um I think, you know, the the only thing I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with is having, you know, religious leaders in the in the House of Lords and you know, I think we need to keep that neutrality, um, so that you know, Britain continues to be, you know, um, equal for for everyone in terms of their um, belief. Well, I certainly think uh, the issue of bishops in the House of
0: Lords is one which is going to rumble on, and one which we should certainly dedicate an episode to soon. Um, but with that i think we're coming up on time so all that remains is to thank my fantastic panelists as ever nicole and lola um before we go nicole um what is happening with the uh, lesser humanists as we head into 2024
1: yeah, so we've got uh, we've been planning the year ahead. So anyone who's listening from Leicester, look forward to some good things. Um, yeah, we're uh, we're going to have our program out uh, in early January of what the year ahead will uh, take. Lots of nice uh, social things, more interesting lectures. Um, yeah, but there's no events up yet, but they'll be up shortly.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and of course, always lovely to see you, Lola. Um, and what is in store for the Association
2: of Black Humanists in the coming months? I think for now, we have a study group. So we've been studying um, philosophy. And please just find us on um, meetup.com. Um, um, I think the, two weeks ago, we studied um, Satra. That was fun. Um, I can't remember who we're studying next, um, but it's on meetup.com. So this has been going on every two weeks. So we are doing European philosophers for now. Um, By February, we will start studying African philosophers. So, yeah, (laughs) I have to say that I haven't done any African philosophy, so I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely. And is there a test at the end of all these um, study groups?
2: I'm looking for a certificate. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> there we go well if you'd like to join uh, any of our speakers at any of those events you can find the links in the show notes so um thank you to our wonderful panel thank you to emma wadsworth jones and thank you to your listener for joining us on humanism now